This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers Jumpstart Writing Competition. The competition is open to original TV pilots and features scripts with a panel of 12 industry judges from top companies, including Circle of Confusion, Echo Lake Entertainment, Verve, Mosaic, Bronze Studios, and more. To learn more and check out their incredible prize packages, visit roadmapwriters.com and choose Jumpstart from the competitions tab. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about working and writing across different TV genres in both comedy and drama with Justin Michael Terry, who is a writer on Stargate Origins and a member of the Resistance and Red Door improv groups. Welcome, Justin. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure Let to have me you. Throw out right away. That I submitted to Roadmap Writers Jumpstart Competition. <laughs> Ooh, Perfect. There you go. Yeah. So <laughs> this get is your out there and do guys. it. This is who you're up against. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna lose. It was <laughs> it was one of those. I finished something. I gotta submit it, and then you get all the notes back on it, and you're like, "Oh, I shouldn't have submitted." <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah. All right, let's get started. <laughs> uh, first up, tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in LA. I was born in Texas. That's not very important. But I grew up in Colorado and lived there for about 25 years. After college, I got a job touring as a dinosaur puppeteer. What? (laughs) For a pretty remarkable show called Walking with Dinosaurs. I don't know if you've seen it. If you haven't, you should Google it because when I talk about it, people just picture Barney in their heads. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But in real life, it's 45 foot tall, like 75 foot long animatronic dinosaurs walking around arenas. So we sold out like Madison Square Garden and the Staples Center, places like that. It was pretty awesome. Did that for like three years off and on. They gave me just buckets of money that I didn't save uh, because (laughs) I was young and stupid. Then (laughs) with the little money I saved up, I moved to LA in 2009 rented an apartment just straight up for six months and then was like, I'm going to audition for everything. This is back when I was so confident with acting. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) I went and auditioned for a bunch of short film stuff like that, booked a few things, thought that I was made, ran out of money, called the tour up and was like, hey, this was a mistake. (laughs) Can I come back? And luckily, it was so recent that they were like, yeah, you want to tour Asia? And I was like, do I? (laughs) So then I I was lucky enough to go back tour Asia for a while and then still save no money, but a little bit more. And then I moved back like the beginning of 2010 and I've been here ever since. Wow. Congratulations. Thanks. So you're both an actor and a writer. Which one of those did you set out to do first? I guess acting based on your story. Absolutely. Uh, and did the the writing side of things come up naturally? Was it something you always intended on doing? How did that work out? I would say they came about consecutively. Mm. I'm a writer, everybody. I know words. <laughs> uh, they kind of matured at the same time because I got into acting in high school But it was through an improv class. So I started doing improv and acting at the exact same time. So I've been doing that for roughly creeping up on 20 years, which is a long time. (laughs) Uh, And the the one thing about improv is that it kind of helps you like establish thought and like narrative and like uh, know where to go and how to foresee things and pick up on little quirks and games and, you know, react and know the voice of several characters. So... That helped tremendously through the acting side of things. And then eventually here in LA, I actually uh, got crazy good representation, like really good. And they were sending me out on auditions for like HBO series as like lead roles. And I had never auditioned for film. So I spent like a year and a half just bombing audition after audition (laughs) in front of like the cream of the casting community. You could have been Tony Soprano. What have you been doing? I could have been. (laughs) I just, they thought it was weird when I did my Italian guy. Um, (laughs) So I failed hard in the acting arena time after time after time. Got a little bit high, made it to producers a couple of times on projects that were pretty much written for me. It was like, all right, you're a white guy who loves whiskey and has friends. (laughs) I was like, oh, good. And then I'd go in and not book it, and I'd be like, maybe I don't even know who I am. (laughs) So after that fell through enough times, I was like, I I should really just start writing for 
myself, which I guess is one of those things that everyone tells you. But it was less that because I never <laughs> intended to like create any product, as can be witnessed by my zero self-created products online. Uh, but I did want to write things that I would want to watch or that I would have fun acting in. So, and I have a very like, not eclectic taste, but I lean more towards like horror human beings that are monsters, like Guy Ritchie, like, uh, the dude that did baby driver. Oh, Edgar Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright. Yeah. He's huge. Like Tarantino, the guy who did blue ruin, those kind of like stories really delighted me or the plays of like philip ridley and martin mcdonough Mm. that stuff i really like latched onto and was like these are characters that i would love to like sink my teeth into and be on screen or on stage playing so that's who i want to like try to create in my own projects and what were some of your kind of earlier inspirations growing up in tv and film and otherwise i had one of those dads that was like a huge movie buff i guess i really got into horror early because my dad showed me cannibal holocaust when i was like 12 <laughs> oh my God. he sat me down and was like this movie's banned in like 50 countries but i have like a, a bootleg laser disc version of it. and we watched it and i was like dear god <laughs> this is i'm 12 and the, some of these images will stay with me for the rest of my life <laughs> which is probably why i still think blair witch project is like one of my top five movies of all time. A lot of people, there's a love or hate movie for them, but everything that that movie is, is just like brilliant across the board from not showing anything to still building up that like fear to pretty much creating viral marketing. And then the the remake that just came out took a huge crap on it. So, <laughs> so I'm glad, glad that it's all been buried now. <laughs> Let's leave it alone. On the comedy side, what were you kind of drawn to when you were younger? I grew up on Married with Children and uh, Ace Ventura. Those were probably my biggest comedy inspirations. And in Living Color. I loved in Living Color. Are you a big uh, Jim Carrey fan? I was a huge Jim Carrey fan, yeah. Everything he did. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> was, a lot of past tenses, you're not on his uh, Jim Carrey existential weirdness train anymore? Or? I am, but not to the extent that he is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I'm all about him thinking that because in a way yeah it's true we're all nothing we're dust in the wind and we're tiny in comparison to the bigger picture but (laughs) when he just like won't let it go (laughs) and like grabs the mic and he's just like what are you what am i what is any of this it's nothing your job is stupid i'm stupid why are we here interview over (laughs) oh my god do fire marshal bill So you could tell us a little bit about your improv and uh, sketch comedy. How long have you been doing it? And what has it taught you about writing and acting? Improv and sketch. I never got into sketch. I have done a total of three sketch shows in my life. And they are all the class shows from the Groundlings school. I made it through all the, the levels of Groundlings. And then one of the levels is called Writing Lab, where you like put on a show at the end of 12 weeks. And I had to write sketches in that. So I did that and I passed that class. And then I waited three years to take the next class because they have, a, uh, this is back before they opened up the, the other half of the side of the street as like a school. So you had to wait a little bit longer, but I just did this recently. And you do a, an advanced lab where you write two different shows and then you put those shows on. I didn't pass that class, but I'm thankful because I don't do sketch. <laughs> so so uh, being forced to write sketch every single week for the next like six months to a year and a half uh, didn't exactly invigorate me with uh, joy. So I didn't pass that. But those are the three sketch classes I've done. That's interesting uh, because you do improv and you do writing. It feels like sketch lives in the middle of that and it would be like a natural combination, but it just doesn't vibe with you. It's just something I've never done. I guess I I love so much writing something that that might be filmed and live forever or improvising something that'll exist in a moment and be gone forever but the idea of like rehearsing something learning the lines and then performing it and maybe it lives on in like crappy phone footage or like a gopro or also is gone forever it's like cool (laughs) i guess i don't know i just i just never really got into it i'm also like just bitter towards sketch because I think it's going in a dumb direction unless you're like very good at it. Pardon my language, but you see sketches now where it's just like, oh, somebody pulled their penis out 
or oh, I'm going to chug milk until I throw up on myself. And that's comedy. And it's like, I'm sorry, but I don't know what you think you're doing, <laughs> but I'm not having a good time. And I can't imagine you are. Uh, <laughs> I love the improv because of just that. It's so reactionary. You're just there and you have no choice but to like listen and connect with people on stage and then feel what they're giving you and react to it in that moment. And that's where just that lightning in a bottle happens that you can't necessarily get with something that you write over and over and over again and then put up once or mm-hmm. twice if it's great. So what lessons do you feel that you've taken from sort of improv and comedy that you've been able to implement, particularly in your more dramatic projects like Stargate or you know horror or things like that? The lessons I've taken away from improv have been, I guess, like connection to people. I feel like a lot of writers are very introverted, so they kind of hang out and they, and they can like deep dive into characters and like do all that research. But I feel like I have a, a wealth of that knowledge just from like being on stage with somebody in a, a multitude of characters and like connecting with them on that level and seeing what they give me and like through the filter of the person I'm playing, how it is I respond to that. I've played everything from like little girls to grown women to grizzled old men to dragons to orcs to water. (laughs) Uh, Like being in a scene and hearing how people are talking and then filtering that through my reaction as like a wave or even just the fire that they're like warming their hands over. But if we're in a horror film and they say something particularly spooky, does the fire like lick towards their hands and like kind of show which way the winds are blowing in a conversation. You can do all that in the moment. So I think one of the biggest lessons I took away as well is visualizing. Like I can see so very clearly everything I'm trying to write, whether or not I can write it the first go around, I can see it. And if I can like at least sketch it out, (laughs) there's that word. If I can like, you know, put a rough draft of it on the page it'll remind me later on and then you can always go back in and poeticize it until it's like where it needs to be. But yeah, I guess human connection, the ability to listen, visualizing those things. Yeah, because I mean, you guys with The Resistance do a really interesting show where you will improvise a particular kind of movie, like a horror movie or an action movie or that kind of thing each week and do all the stunts and everything, which is awesome. You guys should check it out if you get a chance. But how do you work with those tropes when it comes to your own writing and that kind of thing. Obviously, you're playing off of them to make them recognizable for comedy, and then you get down and you're writing like a serious horror movie. Like, How do you kind of deal with avoiding those things or finding a fresh new way in? I am a huge fan of not giving people what they want, which is probably why I haven't sold enough. (laughs) Uh, I'm like a big fan of uh, unhappy endings or turning tropes on their head. Like, what's a good example? Uh, Stargate Origins. Me and another guy wrote that. We knew what we were setting out to do. It was going to be like a, like a 1930s action-adventure Indiana Jones-type vibe, exploring the, the like origin, not origin story, but like an early take on the Catherine Langford character from the series and the original movie and the other movies. And we were like, cool. We also know that the major fan base is white men who like, are pro-military because it's one of the only like military shows that's like a fun sci-fi adventure show but it's like dedicated to like a branch of the air force that like goes out and does this stuff so it has like a very strong following in that regard and me and the other writer were just like cool well and then strong female lead of course we should probably have at least one homosexual relationship (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have Nazis probably, and chances are they're not going to (laughs) win. In fact, they'll get their comeuppance in like fun ways. So we were like looking at ways to twist the knife into the audience itself because we knew who it was. And at the same time, we're like, cool, we should also kind of like put some messages in there. And some of the comments you get back, because people either love it or hate it. But I guess that's true of everything you ever write that has an established IP. Fans were coming off of stargate universe and stargate atlantis which were these huge budget shows and then we give them like this smaller kind of are people still interested in the ip project and they were just like just why didn't you just finish universe (laughs) what's wrong with you when are we going to stop having strong female leads it's the worst and we were just like oh my god when are we going to (laughs) stop i feel like it just kind of started it was nuts so i guess i enjoy 
taking what people are expecting or like what they look forward to in a moment and twisting that knife a little bit. Like one of my favorite things is horror films where you like the characters so that when they die, you care or you're like affected by it. I think one of my least favorite quotes of all time, and I won't say who said it, was somebody was writing a horror film and they were like, it's a good thing I write horror because I'm 10 pages into the script and I already want all my characters to die. <laughs> and I was wow. like, that's not what you should be aiming for. It's basically torture porn. Yeah. yeah. It's like, ah, that's, that's not right. Cause I want you to fall in love with these people so that when they either die or become the bad guy or like have some sort of like weird moment, you're just like, Oh no, not you, Jeff. <laughs> Jeff, I loved you. Uh, those kind of things. I like people to get attached and then either tear it away <laughs> or twist it in some way that makes them be like, why would you do that? Well, speaking of Stargate Origins, can you tell us a little bit about the origin of that project and uh, how you got involved in it? Nice. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I worked a lot in that transition. <laughs> I was going into MGM, Metro Golden Mayor, <laughs> to pitch projects on IP that they already had. So I went in with several takes that could be like reboots or reimaginings of projects they already had in the workflow. They seemed to enjoy the ideas, but they were like, we'll get back to you. Right now, we're still trying to look for a writer for Stargate. And I was like, a what? <laughs> I was like, I love Stargate. Throw my hat in the ring. And they were like, okay, cool. So nothing happened at first. And then I got an email that was like, oh, send some samples over. We'll, we'll go from there. So I sent some samples over and then I got another email like a week later and they're like, cool, you made it through the first couple of rounds. Here's a page and a half outline of what we want the story to essentially be. Take this over the next couple of days, come up with some ideas and then come in on Friday and have a meeting with like all the people in charge. So I like read through it, try to tie in a bunch of like cool World War II stuff like different stargates they could open in different places and like how they could read the stars. So I like blew it out because I was a huge nerd for the first film. I really enjoyed the first film. And I knew that this was happening before that. So I was like, cool. I don't mm -hmm. kind of have to deal with everything else because it's the second longest running sci-fi series of all time, or at least in America. Yeah. Doctor Who's the first, right? But Stargate is the longest continuous uh, one. I think right? I, that's why I switched it to America. Oh. I think it's because Star Trek is first uh, mm -hmm. and then Stargate. But yeah, it has like 400 episodes and three movies. It's got a lot to work with. But anyway, I brought in like five pages of uh, like ideas and like where they could go with their story and like who could be tied in and what could happen there. And then I like just nerded out and talked to them for a while and thought that it went well and then <laughs> shook hands and left. And then like two days later, I got the call. I was like, cool. Pretty much all the homework you did got it for you. <laughs> and I was like, oh, awesome. So I got that job and then worked with them on that. And they liked me enough that then I was also brought in as the onset writer. So during all the production, I got to be on set, like waiting for actors to come up and be like, I'm not sure my character would say this. <laughs> I'd be like, okay, what do you think? <laughs> and then I just rewrite scenes on the spot or add scenes when the director was like, I'd really like to have this moment. A funny story. What the director came up to me one day and was like, I want there to be like an existential moment where... They like go back and forth questioning the existence of God, like in a moment. And I was like, cool, cool, cool. So I wrote out like a two and a half page scene because they couldn't be too long because we were already working on like a very small budget in very contained episodes. So they film it, they do it, it, get, it makes the cut. And then like two months later, I run into the guy who's like in charge of the whole department at MGM. And he's like, hey, did you write the God scene in the desert? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> thinking that he was going to be like, we didn't okay that. And he was like, it was the favorite scene of the test audiences. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, all right. Uh, not my idea, but I did write it. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, it was very cool. It was the origin all the way through the ending. <laughs> very nice. Worked out perfectly. So how did you work with the studio on approaching kind of resurrecting this franchise? And was there any particular mandates for stuff that they, they wanted in there or stuff that you wanted to just put in there out from your own kind of favorite things? Yes, to all of that. Mm -hmm. Even the not yes or no question. I guess first off, it was a crazy process because me and the guy went off on our own and like before the end of like just the outlining process was done, we had a 42 page outline to do what was essentially like, I think turned into a 140 minute feature. 
because it just came out as a feature, which is fun because they cut it into that. <laughs> Check it out. It's called Stargate Origins Catherine. Mm-hmm. So we went off and we did this huge outline and we would bring it in and then weeks would go by and then people would be like, cool, we need to cut like eight characters and most of these sets. <laughs> and we were just like, what? So, so we'd go back in and we'd have to pretty much scrap so much or like combine characters into each other, get rid of a bunch of like villains, trim down the good guys. It was very rewarding by the end of it because it like forced us to narrow our scope so much and make it much more like a character piece rather than like a blown out action adventure so it still had that like setting but it was much more intimate in a way because we we had to shrink down to like a certain number of sets we had to lose a bunch of different props there were things that we didn't think we'd ever have that we cut out that eventually we did have and were put back in like in the (laughs) final moments and it was like this is insane that was a very cool cool process working with the studio in that way it was it was both frustrating and awesome because the amount of times they came back and were like you can't do it and then in the 11th hour be like you can't do it put it in <laughs> just be like oh okay i wanted to tie it into the film because it was supposed to happen before the film my major thing setting out was to find little like easter eggs to like put in that people watching could be like oh that's a fun reference to this or that's a fun reference to that a lot of them didn't make it in <laughs> because people were like, I just, it's too obscure. I, and this isn't even to the first film, but I wanted to throw in a reference to Turin and be like, this is the greatest discovery since Turin. Because that's where they discovered the Ark in uh, Indiana Jones. And it was happening like in the same time period and like mm-hmm. the same kind of area, but it did happen after that film would have taken place. So I was like, ah, that's such like a fun nod to another mm-hmm. like great action adventure movie. But it didn't make the cut, and I understand why, because it's such like an obscure toss-away line. But I guess I wanted there to be really likable characters, and I wanted them to tie into the real movie in some way so that we wouldn't have to just kill them all off. And that being said, I'm not going to tell you the ending. <laughs> <laughs> but there are like some fun stuff that happens that if you watch the original film now, you're just like, oh, that's neat, because it was like set up in this movie that happened years before, technically. And to that, you spoke a little bit about that already, but were there any specific challenges in running something within that pre-established canon and servicing that mythology? Absolutely, there was. As I mentioned, there's like 400 episodes of TV, and that fan base has watched them all like 13 times, (laughs) so they know everything. So we would have to come up with ideas, and then we had a Stargate expert like as part of the staff who would be like, that might contradict the torment of Tantalus. (laughs) This episode from like season one, I think, near the end, where they opened the Stargate in 1945. And apparently that's the first time that it's ever happened. But we were doing it now in 1938. So how are we going to get around that? Or there would just be these these moments where you'd be like, all right, well, this this episode and this episode, and this is what the, the mythology is of this part. So then he would say those things to us. We would go out, do our own little research on it, like go deep dive into the net and try to (laughs) find like all the info we can about certain aspects of the show so that we can come back in, tie it all together and try to make it make sense through a mythology that not only supported classical Egyptian mythology, but also like the alien mythology of the gold through the like Stargate universe. So it was challenging. Yeah. Just trying to like tie up all the loose ends and... In the early episodes, people were so upset because they were just like, they're, they're ruining canon, they're destroying the show. But the movie pays off. Like, you have to get through the whole thing. And that's kind of the problem is those first three episodes were written almost knowing that there was going to be a feature tied together. So it is a little bit more set up and a little less <laughs> like succinct, let me just pay off every episodes, moment we're yeah. going. Uh, to calm down the fans, so they were like, "This is terrible, predictable, and it's garbage." <laughs> like, you, you don't, you think it's predictable, but as I said before, I like setting up stuff that you think you're gonna get, and then taking it away from you. <laughs> so just watch the whole thing. Yeah. Can you talk a little more to that process of how you approached structuring and sort of writing this story as web episodes? And then when did you know it was gonna become a feature, and did that change anything? I think we always knew it was going to be a feature. 
But to start off, we definitely knew it was going to be 10 episodes that were about 10 minutes apiece and then cut into like an hour and 40 minute movie. So we set out essentially to, I guess there, there, there's like a, a kind of screenwriting called sequencing where you can do it like 15 pages at a time or something like that. And it's like little chunks. So we essentially took that idea and just made it 10 minutes. So we kind of had to have the idea of it being a TV show, but also knowing that it was very small, but that they did need to live apart from each other. So every episode kind of had it, its own little arc that would have a, a cliffhanger at the end. So every, every 10 minutes in the movie, there's like a fun little moment that like keeps you going to the next beat. So we just had to take the idea of, I guess, a short film. It's really hard to make short films, but have like a beginning, middle, and end within this 10-minute episode that also was opened enough to lead into the next episode because it was also part of a 10-part larger story, if that makes sense. It was challenging because it's very much like most most movies are like, well, let's ramp up to this part and then maybe like have a little uh, uh, like a plot point that like is a little climax there and then kind of ease off it for a minute and then like build towards that climax and then have that little denouement. So this was more like little climax, little climax, little climax. <laughs> like every little climax would just like kind of climb this mountain towards the finale. But with that kind of show, it's also the finale is happening very much near the end because you got to keep pulling people back and they don't want to watch like two episodes at the end that are just like, well, everything's fine and back to normal. <laughs> so it was very much just build, 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 build. And then like the tag of the entire show is like four minutes long and it's just like, and we're done. <laughs> So could you talk a little bit about the, the production side of things? Uh, you mentioned you were right on set. I think you were maybe also an actor in it. And uh, how did that play out, moving in between the writing stage and the production phase? It was fairly smooth. They were more or less happy with the script going into it. So when you show up as the writer on set, I didn't do a ton. Like there would mostly be sitting around with my computer open. Uh, well, the first couple of weeks of production... I was doing a lot of rewrites, so they would they would come to me with like little issues and just be like, "This part doesn't play right." The uh, the actors are having trouble saying these lines. So there were times when I'd go on set and like get to play the part of the director for a second, which is also where the acting came in handy and the improv because it was like a comedic beat that they just weren't landing, and I didn't ever give them a line reading, which I'm proud of. <laughs> but I was like, put the lines in this order, like. Because they were, they were written in dual dialogue because I kind of wanted that like quick pace, like hit those beats. And so once I like talked them through like the, uh, the pacing of it, then they did it a couple of times and it read great. And then they were like, perfect. We got it. We can move on. And I was like, yeah, I'm valuable. <laughs> <laughs> Victory. And then, you know, back to the room and then just sit on my computer waiting for them to ask me to type a new scene or rewrite a scene or like fix a little moment. Some days I would do that dressed as a Nazi. Because it was a Tuesday, and that's my day for dressing like a Nazi. Uh, I played a, a small role as a Nazi in the TV movie show. So that was fun. And it was only in four episodes, barely had any lines. Because I went in, and I got to audition for the show after I wrote it. <laughs> Which was uh, so trippy, because I was standing in the in the green not the green room but like the lobby area where all the actors are like holding their sides and like quietly saying them to themselves and i was just watching them do it like oh man they have no idea <laughs> i wrote this and they're all about to audition for it uh it was so surreal and so cool so the part i auditioned for i didn't get it um <laughs> uh they gave it to a guy who blew it out of the water they gave me pretty much just the guy who dies pretty quick but still, it was awesome. Uh, I got to do my own stunts. So I was a writer, an actor, and a stunt performer. Wow. <laughs> all, all in the same thing. It was very cool. Uh, you mentioned sort of moments of comedy in there. How did you kind of balance that tone between the drama and the comedy and then the writing? Some people would say we didn't. <laughs> uh, it was in the relationships between people. Like, I knew that with Nazis and with aliens and with a, like a strong-headed woman in charge, that there was going to be plenty of drama. So then I set out with the other writer, Mark Ilvidson, to create characters who could like ease that tension and like keep a little bit of levity to it. There was also like an element of the mummy in there, the Brendan Fraser one, where it's just like this almost tongue-in-cheek adventure movie that's like in the desert that 
it just, you feel good going along for the ride because it's not just hitting you over the head with how serious this situation is. So we had a British captain named Beale and we had his Egyptian counterpart, Wasif. They just had like a very unique dry humor relationship with each other that when Catherine like got into the mix and was like trying so hard to be serious their relationship through her and then the budding like relationship between her and Beale and Wasif like being the third wheel to the whole situation it was very fun to write because you just like how does somebody who doesn't view the world as seriously as everyone else say a certain line to like cut the tension in the room? So the distribution of Stargate Origin is very unique through that Stargate Command website. Can you tell us a little bit about how that worked and the idea behind it? Stargate Command was set up as pretty much a, a one-stop site for all things Stargate. I think it went into effect a little bit before the actual project even started being made, they were already creating this, and it was going to house all of the TV episodes, all of the movies, and then also start to feature like behind the scenes footage or like interviews with different people, little known facts. It was just pretty much like for super fans, this is where you go, and it'll give you like all this fun information so you can stay in the loop. And then through the course of that, they would start doing like interviews with the cast of this show. And they would start peppering those in and then like giving away like pictures of Bruca, who, who is the like Nazi occultist, who was like the bad guy images from his journal and like his studies like around the world. And like, you could just go on and deep dive a little bit and just made it feel more like real and visceral for the audience. And it was like 20 bucks, I think. And then you got like unlimited access for three months to a year. I don't know. I didn't sign up. Uh, (laughs) i'm sorry i had the inside track so i was able to watch it on my own and i knew what happened uh (laughs) but yeah it was just it was pretty much just this mega mega platform that was set up probably if you look at it from the outside to make money to help fund whatever it is they're going to move forward and do garner interest for the the ip uh, or intellectual property of Stargate, and then use the money from the fans to help create the next step with the backing of other studios that see that there is still like a mega fan base out there just waiting for something new. And then with the the release of Stargate Origins Catherine, it makes me feel like their next step is to do possibly more Stargate Origins because they gave it a title (laughs) (laughs) instead of just keeping it Stargate Origins. So maybe the next one will be like Stargate Origins Raw or Stargate Origins something else. Yeah, Teal. Uh, that's like the number one fan fan request is Teal, and I actually put together like a whole pitch for that show, oh, nice, and sent it in, and I haven't heard anything back. So cross your fingers, everybody. <laughs> I want to see him do the like Teal private eye. Uh, oh, Teal PI. Yeah, that's such a good. Indeed. So, so what was the the reaction from fans and critics to Stargate Origins? And then how do you kind of deal with that response, whether positive or negative? It was, I would say, more negative at first, because you're taking something that people love. And as far as they can tell, you're ruining it. (laughs) Because you're changing it from what they love and respect. So people were like attacking the the acting, the writing, the quality of it, the story of it. And this is all just after the first three episodes I dropped. <laughs> so again, it was like, all right. And people were like, it's nowhere near the quality of acting of SG-1. And if you're a big fan, I want you to go back and watch the first episode of SG-1. Because when they're all sitting around playing cards, watching the Stargate, and the curtain or the like tarp starts to blow, and she's like, guys, guys, should that be happening? And they're like, are you in or not? Are you in? And she's like, guys, the should that be, are you in? It's like, they're not even paying, this is their job. <laughs> and I assume that wind doesn't blow through this thing every day and they don't even care. And then she just wanders up towards it and then it goes off and then the like snake people come through and it's just like, I, I'm sorry. But Raise the bar. <laughs> Set your standards higher. Uh, 
Oh, but then yes, it it has it has evened out a little bit. Like there are those people who who just love Stargate and are glad that there's more Stargate in their lives, so they get to go and watch it. I don't remember who did it. it might have been through Gate World or something like that. But they recently did a podcast where they they talked about the whole season, like watching it start to finish and how they felt about it. And at the end of it, they were like, "Yeah." Overall, I enjoy it. These are our favorite parts, but it felt like a whole story and I felt satisfied by the end of it. And I like that it ties itself into the original movie. And that reassured me because I was like, good. (laughs) Thank you for watching the whole thing. Thank you for that. The only critique they had was a part that um, the producers put in that they thought was funny, but they didn't trust that I was a comedian. And I didn't think it was funny. Uh, (laughs) So it was pretty much split down the middle. It always is. It's just, as with everything on the internet, the people who don't like it are always the loudest. So I have not deep dived into the comments. I pretty much try to stay away from it. What I uh, recommend anyone dealing with a popular IP to do when they're writing anything, because everybody has strong feelings about it. (laughs) Anything that begins with star. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They're not afraid to rip you to pieces. So moving back to the writing of it all, do you find it difficult to go back and forth across different or disparate genres like comedy, drama, sci-fi, horror, etc.? I guess one of the things I try to do is not worry about it. I believe that the same characters live in every universe. So I would have no problem taking every person I wrote in Stargate and putting them into like a horror film or into a drama and seeing it because human beings don't become archetypes or stereotypes because of the genre they're in. So the language might change a little bit, like sci-fi especially, there's there's a degree of technology that you have to now play with. But I don't necessarily have a problem with it because I feel like I understand what happens in those movies. And as long as I put real people into those situations, the story's going to play itself out. Do you feel that kind of working across genres affects your brand when people think of Justin Michael Terry? Do you think it's good to have some sort of recognizable niche or to do a little bit of everything? Or mm, That's a very good question. It probably does. But I've always, like when I set out, I wanted to write genre stuff. Like I never thought, oh, I really want to write like Hotel Rwanda or something just like very dramatic, like Still Alice uh because <laughs> it's just like those those stories are incredible but they're kind of depressing and i was recently reading uh, a book on horror storytelling that that talks about how the thing that separates horror from like drama is that dramas dramas comedies are comedies like sci-fi sci-fi but horror is really the only one that can live across every genre because it can be horror comedy horror drama horror sci-fi And the thing that makes them so successful and so widespread is that there is a catharsis that happens in that release because you know what you're getting into. Whereas still Alice, you're just like, oh, God, I want Alice to get better. (laughs) (laughs) I just want her to like go back and have the like normal life. But, you know, she won't because it's that slice of life that's just like horrible. That's the real horror. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's so horrifying. And there is no release. You just leave the theater being like, wow, I guess death comes to us all. (laughs) Uh, Whereas, like, a great horror film, there is that chance of just, like, I know the monster is going to keep coming and coming and coming, but maybe the final girl is going to kill him, or maybe they're going to escape. And even if they do escape, there's that moment of reprieve before the, like, she jumps into the back of a pickup truck and it just pulls her right back around to the town. And you're just like, oh, no! Uh, It cuts the tension enough that you can still be delighted and terrified and horrified, but, like, have that release and that moment that leaves you wanting more but not feeling so caught up in it that you're just like man cannibals right (laughs) (laughs) so i set out to write genre stuff the first job i got was stargate origins which is a pretty awesome first job to have and now i am currently writing a feature horror script to be honest i set out mostly to write horror i love it and i've always loved it so the fact that i'm getting this job now i think is uh pretty awesome because It's coming right on the heels of another job that I just wrote, and it's more in line with what I'm comfortable doing. Again, it's dealing with some recognizable IP, so I'm sure it'll be pan. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that's that's where I want to be. So my branding right now, I guess, is split. It's on the fence, but at least it's in the genre world, the like hard genre world of uh, sci-fi and horror. Those are the two things that I have out there. 
And I think that's great. And that's kind of what I want to work towards. And I have a horror comedy pilot that I'm working on. And I also have another horror feature in the works, as well as several horror comedy features. Because despite how much I love horror, I can't get away from comedy. <laughs> well, well, to that, do you see yourself going back to comedy, like doing a full comedy feature or a comedy pilot or balancing out your projects to incorporate comedy as well as uh, drama? Uh, I will always balance out my projects with comedy. I feel like... It's such a good way to get characters to be likable. And they don't even have to be like laugh out loud like jokes, but there is something in the lightheartedness or the way that characters react to each other that isn't always just like, you didn't pay the rent. Oh, well, I hate you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, look at something like uh, Edgar Wright, the zombie one. Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead. Man, my mind. Like they have that that relationship with each other where it's like it could be like just a bitter roommate relationship, bitter friend relationship because he's always messing up, but they only really touch on that once. And even uh, but Edgar Wright is so good at that sort of thing that he puts that moment in the middle of a larger comedic beat. So he's he's such like a master of that visual storytelling to ease that tension. But yeah, I will always put comedy into everything. To make sure that characters have that moment. I can't think of any of the one that's just always, always dramatic. Even the people you see on the news that seem like they're never having a good time, you know that they are sometimes, somewhere. And showing those moments just humanizes them. It shows more of a, a three-dimensional character. And they're always more fun to watch die, in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> So from like a craft perspective, do you approach the writing differently when you're doing something that's more in the vein of comedy than in the vein of drama? Not necessarily. I am terrible at outlining. I've done it once for Stargate, and it was great. <laughs> <laughs> But as a person, I have a real hard time like sitting down and figuring out where it's going to go. And this probably has a lot to do with the nearly 20 years of improv experience. I, ha I usually have like a good idea of chunks of it, but how I'm going to get to those chunks, I don't necessarily know. An exception to that is me and my buddy Ryan, who's my my comedy partner in Red Door, and also for writing our comedy horror stuff, we will kind of outline, but also not like great at it. <laughs> so we have the note cards and we'll just like write out, oh, this would happen. But we approach it like we would do one of our improv shows. And our improv shows are like notoriously kind of dark, but also very reactionary like if something happens you're gonna get called out on it and then we'll just see where that goes so we'll be outlining and i'll just write down like a scene and like put it there and then it'll be like oh i mean if, if that happens and this somebody somebody's gonna like call them out and just be like yeah you're right so it's like that person gets called out well, what do we do i guess they should probably kill that guy all right but what happens if they kill that guy oh you're right maybe his buddies come over <laughs> and so it just and it could lead us somewhere that we never planned on going But we do kind of know how we want each like beat to end and like where we want the whole thing to end. And then we'll kind of work on it from there. I heard a rumor that that's how the writer's room for Fargo was. Like they'd go in and say, this is the first episode. This is the last episode. Well, we don't know what the middle is. As a writer's room, it's your job to go wherever you want as long as you end up here. <laughs> <laughs> and then they were allowed to just like make some of those crazy moves that would take them in fun directions. As long as they knew where they needed to end up, then it could go wherever they want it. Have you ever played the game Fiasco? No. It's sort of like this like improv slash board game type thing where a group of people, it's based off of all of the kind of Coen Brothers type things. And like, you know, you're given like a character and a certain like, you know, like an item or a background or whatever. And then like you all just improvise uh, like a Coen Brothers movie together, sitting around a table, you know, kind of like a role playing type thing. It's, it's a lot of fun. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Fiasco. Yeah. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs> It's a great resource. And as uh, discussed, you were also an actor on uh, Stargate Origins. Do you like to act in your own projects or other people's projects? And is that something you would like to continue doing beyond writing moving forward? Absolutely. Pipe dream of mine, even though he's not much older than me, is to be like the next Taylor Sheridan. Because <laughs> he writes really awesome stuff, but also like got to start acting. And I think he still does. Or like Justin Trudeau. Nope. 
That's that's what's his name. That's the Canadian Prime Minister. That's the Canadian Prime Minister. Yeah. Love his work. Love it. Got to start teaching. Now a Canadian Prime Minister. That's where you see yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, either writer, actor, or Prime Minister of another country. Um, Set your goals high, kids. Uh, Who am I thinking of? Justin Thoreau. (laughs) Justin Thoreau. That's the one. Yes. Who, like, co-wrote Tropic Tropic Thunder. Thunder, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And he still acts all the time and like is a lead in things, but that's such like an incredible movie at the same time. You're just like, wow, you can do it both. So yes, I do love acting in things. They don't necessarily need to be what I write in. I, I got to a point where I was like, if I keep writing for myself, it's going to be my job to make it. Whereas if I write for other people, somebody else might buy it and make it. And I'm fine with that because I don't need to be in these things. But I do still love to act. And I just the other day played a cowboy in a travel channel show. So (laughs) Uh, I I still love acting. And I love when people ask me to be in things. So if you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm available. But I I, I stopped writing for myself. And if I do, I got a real great piece of advice from my managers. They were like, always write a third or fourth character in your script, like a low enough character that you could just play that character. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, it's a great piece of advice. And it already happened with Stargate Origins. So so it's it's firing on all cylinders. Then what's next for you in the short term? And also, what are some of your kind of end goals? Mm. Uh, Well, currently, I'm writing a horror feature for an unnamed production company. It's going to be the most stressful job ever because I'm essentially writing a feature in nine days, which is just nuts for butts. And then I'll have rewrites through the end of July. And then that'll go into production in August. After that, I plan on revamping the the pilot that me and Ryan have written. That's getting some good feedback and we've got some good notes on it. Currently touching up a horror feature that I wrote a while back that ended up getting me my representation and placing in the screencraft horror competition. And I want to fix that one up and see if I can't sell it. And then uh, Ryan and I also have like three other horror comedy features that we are plotting out currently. So really just a bunch of horror in my future, (laughs) hopefully. That and just keep performing improv every week. And where do you think you'd like to end up as a kind of a career goal? You know, I don't know. I don't think I need to be a household name. I would rather just be comfortable. I would like to maybe move somewhere where it rains (laughs) and not have to stay in LA. I love LA, but it's like 105 degrees outside right now. (laughs) Uh, I've never been a big fan of heat. I love the rain. I'd love to move somewhere where it just rains and have work called into me so I could just work from home. And I'd love to own a house. Really simple goals. (laughs) Simple goals from a simple man. Owning a house, pipe dream in 2018. (laughs) (laughs) The LA pipe dream. All right, before we go, we have some final questions for you. Number one, what are you watching on TV right now? I just watch cooking shows. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much I have them on all the time in the background. Just me and my girlfriend just always have cooking shows on. We just made it through about 17 seasons of Hell's Kitchen. We've watched all of the Chopped, all of Cutthroat, uh, the Great British Baking Show, mm. Master Chef, Master Chef Junior, <laughs> um, everything. Oh, now we're on uh, Diners, Drive-ins, and Dives, or uh, Barbecue, the one with uh, Michael Simon. I don't know; it's incredible. Just don't watch it hungry. It's a death <laughs> sentence. Are you into cooking or just eating? <laughs> just eating. Uh, a little bit of cooking, but uh, not necessarily good at it. But let's see: TV shows that are real. Uh, (laughs) I just finished season two of Into the Badlands, also more or less like a background show that I put on just because I'm big into like martial arts and action stuff like that. I watched all the Fargo's I could. I watched the first season of Shut Eye, watched a little bit of Wolf Creek on Shudder. I'm all over the board, man. All over the board. <laughs> Do you have any advice for writers or actors from you know things that you've learned along the way on your journey? Learn to take a note. <laughs> uh, I find that more often than not, people fall in love with their ideas. And if you get notes on it, you, your instinct is to defend it, but just take the note. You don't need to implement it exactly how they say, 
like take what works and leave what doesn't uh, is one of the best notes ever. Like hear everybody out because everybody's reading your project or seeing you perform in a different way. And it might not be the way you think you're doing it or putting it on paper. So listen to everything and work it out. And finally, do you have any resources, be it books, podcasts, websites, apps, anything that you have found useful and you would recommend to our listeners? Mm, I read a lot. I recommend doing that. Uh, <laughs> just find books. People don't do it anymore. I have like 30 books just on my phone. <laughs> I'm, I'm a big nerd for like story stuff. So I, I have a lot of like story books. If you've never read Story by McKee. I recommend that one. It's pretty amazing. You can find books and whatever you like. Like uh, as a performer in the resistance, we do like improvised action movie is how we kind of market ourselves, but we'll do tons of different genres that live within kind of that moniker. So I have books on like the philosophy behind action movies. I have the philosophy of horror movies. I have six guns in society, which is just about like how Westerns play into the world. I have like five or six different books just on Hitchcock and like his approach to feminism or how he made people fall in love with murder or <laughs> like all these, di I have just books on violent movies or like studies of Takashi Miike, just random, random things where you just read these books and you're like, cool. I, every time I read a page, I have a broader understanding of something and that's just very valuable to be able to pull on. I like yeah. Robert E. Howard. You ever read Robert E. Howard? He created Conan and like Call and uh, Solomon Kane, stuff like that. He's written tons of like horror and adventure. And he was such a poet. Oh man, you don't realize it because you're like Conan. <laughs> <laughs> But you go and read some of Robert E. Howard's books and you're just like, man, this dude could craft a sentence. Uh, he was a wordsmith. Him and Rod Serling. Like, go read some of like Rod Serling's short stories or any of his like old teleplays. That guy was killer. And just read screenplays. I love reading screenplays. And Justin Trudeau's bio also. Oh, my God. And <laughs> How to Run Canada by <laughs> Justin Trudeau. <laughs> and it's him on the cover wearing a traditional Indian garb. <laughs> no. All right, before we go, just a reminder that our paper tease competition is still open for submission. So if you have a TV pilot teaser of eight pages or less, can be any format, any genre, uh, you can enter that for free at paperteam.co slash teaser to potentially get feedback from us on air and win prizes from our sponsors. So that brings us to the end of the episode. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in, and thanks to Justin for joining us. I'm going to submit to that paper tease thing. a <laughs> <laughs> live review of it. Uh, you can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 98. If you want to leave us a review, we would love that. You can do it at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And all those reviews are going to help us attract new listeners and build our paper team community. And our sponsor, Roadmap Writers, has launched their inaugural Jumpstart writing competition. It's open to both original TV pilots and feature scripts. The competition presents 12 esteemed industry judges from top companies, including Circle of Confusion, Echo Lake Entertainment, Verve, Mosaic, and more. So to learn more and view their incredible prize packages, visit roadmapwriters.com and choose Jumpstart from the competitions tab. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Are you on Twitter, Justin? I am, but I don't check it. <laughs> I'm on Instagram <laughs> at Justin the Walls. All right, we'll link that in the show notes. And if you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And next week, we're having a very special 99th episode. Uh, yes, I believe we're doing a retrospective of, of our previous episodes and guests, and we'll be catching up with a lot of them and hearing what they've been doing in their lives since then. It's going to be a very special 99th episode. That's a very specific number, isn't it? <laughs> Congratulations. That's 100th episode. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing interesting happening after the 90th episode. Don't, don't Yeah, don't it's, it's a that. serious finale. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see you next week. We'll see you next then.